I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. So this is uh, part five in the Mark series, going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, covering theology, apologetics, historical insights, and various other things. We're going to focus today, though, on theology. Today we're covering, um, among other things, well, we're we're doing verse by verse, but one thing we'll be covering in particular, I'll spend a good amount of time on it, is a controversy in the church that I don't think should be a controversy, but somehow it is, and sometimes that happens. And it has to do with the idea of repentance and we'll be talking about whether repentance is a work, whether it's necessary, what does it mean, why, how, how essential is it as part of the gospel, all that kind of thing. Um, so here we go. We'll start in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. We're just going to read verse 14 and 15. We'll do just sort of plod through treatment of it. When we get to the part about repentance, I'll break out and do a little, as I've said I would do in this Mark series, this, like we'll stop and have a little theological examination of a concept, you know, we'll do that as we get there. So verse 14, it says, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here's big picture stuff, right? I want to start with the big picture stuff because sometimes you get lost in the details and you don't see the forest through the trees. So let's start with the forest, then we'll examine some trees. That, that's, that's our, our I, I like that analogy. That, that's our, uh, our, our way of doing things here tonight. So big picture stuff is this is Jesus's first public preaching. His very first public preaching. And what he preaches is super simple and really profound. And I think we have to focus on it. But it's simply repent and believe the gospel. The gospel being that, that message about Jesus. Mark's already established that, right? In Mark 1, it's the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God. This is, this is the gospel. It's, it's about Jesus. So repent and believe in the things he's doing and the things he's saying and, and who he is. It's also an incredible summary of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan for man's salvation. I'll explain that in a minute. But this little phrase, the time is fulfilled. That I think it's like, hey, here I am. I'm fulfilling the time. He's He is God's plan for man's salvation. It's also a good summary of Jesus as the way to enter the kingdom of God. That's what I think is meant by the phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand. It means it's available. Guess what? The time is now. The kingdom of God is available and it's all centered around Jesus. And then how you can be saved by repenting and believing in him. So that's the main point. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan for bringing people into his kingdom. It's all, it's all about Jesus. It really is all about Jesus. And when you see from creation to salvation to consummation, another term speaking about the future remaking of all things, right? From all of that, when you see how much it's all about Jesus, it, you're, it blows your mind and it just stirs your heart to worship the Lord. This can't really be overstated. Jesus, central in creation, central in redemption, and central in us participating in the kingdom, and finally central in the um, ultimate renewal of all things. So what is our response then? Repent and believe. That's the summary. Okay, so the gospel, there you go. Jesus, 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 repent and believe. That's, that's, the, that's the summary of the gospel message. And now we're going to analyze it more carefully, more thoughtfully, and more slowly, starting again in verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preached, preaching the gospel of God. What John is this? John the Baptist, right? There's multiple Johns in the Bible. This is John the Baptist, not John the disciple. When I was a a teenager, a young teen, and I started reading the Bible for the first time, and I was reading the Gospel of John, I came to the part where John had been killed. And I was like, wait a minute. 
I thought John wrote this thing. And I remember, I, f- I remember distinctly, I flipped to the beginning of the book to see, yeah, it says the Gospel of John. It, like, it says John. And I was really confused until I realized there was more than one guy with that name. And it's sometimes these little things that we just don't know that just confuse us. And so I, I, I put them out there for anybody who perhaps might need to hear that. Um, so John the Baptist, he's taken into custody. And we actually have extra biblical verification for this. It's actually written about in Josephus. The, I've mentioned this before, but he's the first century historian uh, who was a Jewish man, but he was a historian for the Romans. So we call him a Jewish Roman historian. Um, he speaks of John the Baptist's existence, the fact that he did that he did focus on baptisms and he commanded people to be baptized, that he had a huge following, and his eventual death by Herod. And we'll get more into that when we hit Mark chapter 6. I'll talk a lot more about that because Mark talks a lot more about that. Interestingly, Mark just skips it all right now. He wants to talk about Jesus. He talked about John and he wants to move quickly to Jesus and stay focused on Jesus. He'll give you more details about John the Baptist later on, but first, let's let Jesus be front and center. And that's, you see how quickly Mark in his gospel just immediately moves to Jesus. Starts with Jesus, really, and then gets the focus on him even more. So what's the point then? The point of this is that John the Baptist goes as God's, like, forerunner to tell the people to repent. Someone's coming after him who's greater. And then when Jesus shows up on the scene, John comes off the scene. It's a trade-off. Now, guess what? Now Jesus is the one you should be listening to. Jesus is the one. Um, We get this also from John chapter 3. In John 3, verses 28 through 31, it says this, You yourselves are my witnesses, John the Baptist speaking, by the way. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. His greatest joy is just to see Jesus step into his own. And he goes on, he must increase, I must decrease. And we get this and we apply it to our lives too, because sometimes that really is how it is. I need to decrease. And as I'm decreasing in my life in some very unpleasant ways, sometimes God is increasing. It is in his, uh, his power is made perfect in my weakness that I do find that is a very true thing. But in John's life, he's speaking of it in a slightly different fashion. He's like, I have to diminish. My ministry has to shrink so that his can, his can step in and grow. And there's a lot of symbolism in that actually as well. Um, so he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So Jesus, he's greater. He's the one who comes from heaven. He's the one who speaks from heaven. John, yeah, he's a true messenger of God, but he's an earthly man. Nothing compared to this Jesus who's just show up. Um, does this, some would say, does this mean that Jesus's message is more true than John's message or more true than the law and the prophets that came before him? Um, first off, more true isn't like a thing. <laughs> like, it's not really a thing. It's like two plus two is four, but two plus three is five is more true. It's like, I don't know. Truth is true. It's just is true. Um, some people might like to say this, and some people do this. They try to focus on Jesus as a way of invalidating the actual Old Testament law. Or uh, Jesus is my filter for disagreeing with the Bible. And I'm speaking of, in particular, one recent pastor who's written a book doing this. His name's Brian Zond. And I I did a review of his book online, Brian Zahn's book. But he really does think he can use Jesus to disagree with the Bible. That's what it ultimately comes down to. Well, Jesus isn't going to disagree with the things Jesus told other people to say. Um, So that's not going to happen. But no, so it's not that it's, he's more true. It just means that all of the other messages from God were ultimately pointing to him. And you're not properly understanding those messages unless you see how they point to Christ. That's the idea. That's why the veil comes off when one comes to Christ. And that the, the Old Testament 
the light turns on for you. So it means Jesus also, he speaks as the one from above, which is what John said. He's from above, preexistent, right? He comes as God among us. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 mentions this as well. Listen to the terminology it uses. Think of the handoff of we have the prophets and law speaking, John speaking as well. And then we have Jesus himself show up. How big of a deal is this? Hebrews 1, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So there's like a different um, degree of importance, a degree of, I should say, consequence when one responds to the prophets versus the son. This is the ultimate speaking of God. Hebrews 2 explains this in more detail. It says, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every uh, transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, that's on one side. In the Old Testament law, hey, you break this law, you get a just penalty. That's the nature of the law. How... On the other side, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard him? The consequence of breaking Moses' law, physical death, or just some other penalty, a just penalty, right? The consequences of rejecting what Jesus said, it's going to be a greater issue, just as the salvation that it offers is something that was greater. Um, So it means other revelations from God, Old Testament or John the Baptist, they were about leading us to the ultimate revelation, Jesus, and were judged ultimately by our response to Jesus. And it's an extreme judgment uh, because it's also an extreme message, messenger, and extreme salvation. In Acts 10.42, we get some more of this kind of content. It says, And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So he's not only Jesus meek and mild. Like I get that he's Jesus and he comes meek and mild. I have a lot to learn from him there. But that doesn't mean that he's Jesus like soft and pushover. Like there's no pushover version of Jesus. He is the, the judge of the living and the dead. He's the judge of all. That's a kind of a big deal. In 1 Peter 4, 5, it says, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Who's that? That's Jesus. And that the people he's talking about is false teachers. False teachers will have to stand before Jesus and give account to him. They'll stand before him as judge and maybe expecting grace, but because they're out of Christ, they're just going to have his wrath. And the son does come. The extremities of both, of the incredible love of God and the wrath of God, are both consistently true in Jesus. It's pretty powerful stuff. So his message, what's Jesus' message? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. He comes, yeah, he's the judge of the living and the dead, but in his initial coming, he's coming to save you. He's coming to redeem you. He's coming to bring you into the kingdom in his grace. So John decreases. Christ is now successfully in focus. And I say, praise God. Side note, your focus should be on Jesus. Have, it, it, it's worth thinking about it. Have other things taken some of your attention or your focus off the primacy of Christ in your heart, in your mind, in your life, in the reason for the things that you do. Um, it's good to evaluate yourself, not for the sake of, um, am I saved or not? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not? Now that's fine, an evaluation sometimes, but if that's all you ever evaluate, then you maybe just be paranoid. <laughs> it's good to evaluate, okay, I know I'm in the Lord, but is my focus on the Lord right now like it should be? And then to let that change and let, let your focus get back upon him. Maybe have a time of focusing and even fasting to just 
center yourself upon the Lord in a better way. Um, sometimes, you know, people, they struggle because someone led them to Jesus and then that person really let them down. Um, or or a, a, an organization. The, the church they came to the Lord in, they find out later has all kinds of problems. Um, which you'll, you'll find out problems eventually. <laughs> Every, anybody you know well enough, you're going to see issues in their lives. It's going to happen. And we can get disappointed. But sometimes it's because our attention is, we're expecting them to be like Jesus for us. And we're not realizing they're just like you. They're just like you and me. Trying, struggling, sometimes making mistakes, sometimes just getting off the rails. Um, and Jesus needs to be our focus. All right, verse 15, Mark 1, 15, it says, And saying, now here's the message Jesus brings, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Question for you guys. As you read this, this message, do you think this is Jesus in, is his entire message? Do you think that's everything he preached? Pro- probably not. It's probably a summary, right? It's like he probably, he probably went around and said a whole lot more to people than this. So why does Mark say just one sentence to demonstrate the entire message Jesus had for people? Because this is like the, 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 um, the reduced, I, I used to make like my own pasta sauce with canned tomatoes from my granny. Right? I, would, I would just get just the water out of that canned tomato and I would just reduce it down and get it stronger and stronger. Mm, my mouth water just thinking about it. The point is, Mark has done this with the message of Jesus. He's reduced it down, made a reduction sauce out of it. And the idea is that all the essential elements are right there in this sentence. And so we're going to analyze this sentence. It's the essential gospel message that Jesus presented to people. That to me is exciting. Let's look at it again. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's so short. Like, that's like vine length, right? Not that, is that still a thing? Do people still, remember, uh, I was, the youth were all into that for a couple of years back. It was like, everybody's into vines for like 10 seconds. Um, <laughs> um, so, we don't think it's all Jesus said, but we focus on it. We go, this gives us some essential truths about the gospel. And the first one is this phrase, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. Now you might think, okay, the prophecy about when Jesus would show up, that's being fulfilled. But it's actually bigger than that, I think, right? I think that's included, but it's not just one prophecy that's fulfilled. There is a sense in which Jesus, when he shows up, it's just prophecies fulfilled. It's like just the fulfillment. And he talks about it like this, when he just says, the time is fulfilled. What time? The time. Like, I'm here. This is what it's all been building up to. This is what it's all been about, has been bringing us to this moment right now. This is when he talks about how the law and the prophets speak of him. When he says in in Matthew 5, he says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And he just, this sweeping statement, like he's just fulfilling all of it. We often categorize, and we have like prophecies about first coming, prophecies about second coming. But Jesus, he's not just saying, I'm here to do the first coming thing. He's not, nor is he saying, oh, I'm here to do the second coming stuff. He's just saying, I'm here. I've arrived. Like, this has been the whole thing. It's been all about this. Now the mystery of God is revealed. The veil comes off. It's the big oh moment that the movie's been building up to. Where now you go, oh, I got to go rewatch the whole movie now. <laughs> right? Because that was the thing. That was what it was all about. And that's, that's the point. The whole Old Testament. Prophecies, pictures of Christ, riddles, um, the needs the, the question marks you have as you read through it and you, things you don't understand that only make sense with Christ, the promises, the purposes, all of it. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, as he says. Um, yes, I'm repeating myself. I've shared this before, 
and I will share it again. But I think it's really important. And I do recommend, if you haven't checked it out, to check out the Jesus in the Old Testament series, which has been the funnest series I've ever done for me, um, most enjoyable to teach and study for, um, where we go through types of Christ throughout the scriptures, and we just, we just do some of it. And sadly, there's only like 20 parts in that series, unfortunately. So the time is fulfilled. And the next thing he says is, okay, the time is fulfilled. Now the kingdom of God is at hand. And like I said earlier, I think it means it's available to you right now. Right? The kingdom of God is now available to you. And we get this like in, later on in Mark 10, 15. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And here clearly he's thinking of the kingdom as something you can receive and enter into. And he goes, ha, the kingdom's here now. But he also goes on in other places to say his, this, this, uh, this world, that his kingdom is not of this world. Yet he's inviting people into the kingdom, yet the kingdom's not of this world. What does that mean? Well, just put the two together. You can come be part of God's kingdom, but the kingdom itself will not be established on earth at this time. It's just people being brought in. Well, that's evangelism. That's what he's talking about. This is, this is a very Jewish way of saying, hey, time for evangelism. You, you, can, you have access to salvation in Christ. It's available to you right now. Why is the kingdom at hand now versus it not being obviously at hand in, some, in that sense earlier? Because Jesus is at hand. Because where Jesus is and the message of Jesus is, the access to the kingdom is. And then finally he gets into the response. Repent and believe in the gospel. And here's the controversial part. The word repent. Many people say that we should not be preaching repentance. That is offensive. Um... I've had discussions with people in ministry who just say, it doesn't work, Mike. You just, it doesn't work. You go out there and you preach like that, it just doesn't work. Um, I don't care, to be honest. Um, don't get me wrong. Like, I care when people receive Christ or not, but I'm not like, well, whatever gets them to sign on the, on the dotted line, I'll do that. When I may be getting them to sign on the wrong contract, you know, when I, when I present the, the gospel incorrectly, I'm not actually, it's, that also doesn't work. It just fills your pews, but it's not working, I would say. Um, so there's some, though, who say we shouldn't preach repentance because, for one, it's not needed. And this is something they'll actually say, that repentance is not part of the gospel. You don't need to repent to come to Christ. There's no repentance necessary. Um, <clears throat> they would say it's not needed for salvation, and they would even go further and say it's not even needed for following Jesus later on in your life. You can be a Christian, you can stay a Christian, and you can never repent of your sin. Now, I say some people. I think most Christians would naturally reject this kind of concept, right? But some people do say that. <clears throat> some, they'll add to this, you can't add repentance to the gospel because repentance is a work, and you're adding a work to the gospel if you tell people repent and believe. You're saying faith plus works, but we know that's, that's wrong. We're saved by faith apart from works. So they think that. Others think repentance is just a stumbling block. Like when I go to people and I tell them about, the, man, Jesus loves you. God loves you so much. And you have to repent. I'm like, man, you just killed it. <laughs> you just killed it. Like it was, it was going so well until you mentioned the R word. Oh, that's not going to work, Mike. It's going to cause people to stumble. And um, others will add finally, don't worry. You don't need to preach repentance. The Holy Spirit will do that for you. And I'll be like, well, if that's your theology, then you don't even need to preach at all. Because apparently the Holy Spirit can just do everything and you can just go play games with people and wait for them to get saved. That doesn't, that's logic doesn't work. Um, 
And I've heard it a lot. Well, the Holy Spirit will do that. The Holy Spirit will do that. Well, it, there's a truth to this in that I'm not going to try and fix everybody all the time, right? I'm going to wait on God to work on their lives and all this sort of thing. But with the gospel message, I don't reduce the gospel message and take pieces out and then trust the Holy Spirit to do that. I'm tasked to present the message. I don't get to edit the message here, not the gospel. That's not something I get to play with. So we're going to go through a bunch of scriptures right now and try to answer some of these objections to the idea of repentance and get some clarity on it because I think that some of the people who are rejecting the idea of repentance, they just don't understand what we mean when we say repent. It's not a work. So we'll get into that in a second. First, we'll ask the question, is it necessary? Is repentance like really part of this gospel message that I'm supposed to be presenting? And for that, we will survey a bunch of scriptures um, and we'll start with John the Baptist. In Matthew 3, 2, we have John the Baptist who proclaims repentance. We've read about this before, but this is, uh, I'm going to put three different gospels together here. In Matthew 3, 2, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our response to the kingdom of heaven, to this opportunity to be saved, is to repent. In in Mark 1, 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance for for forgiveness which, again, I'll, I'll show you later, that's not a work. It's an attitude that we take towards our sin. In Luke 3, 3, John the Baptist, it says, he came into the, all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's John the Baptist. Then we have Jesus. In Mark 1, 15, we just read this. He preaches, repent and believe in the gospel. In Matthew 4, 17, Jesus, it says, Um, he began to preach, and this is, again, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew summarizes Jesus' gospel message with an even shorter summary than Mark. And he says, um, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He just says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven. He didn't even mention believe. Now, I'll explain later, I think repentance and faith are two opposite sides of the same coin. I think you're doing both whenever you do one. I, I really think you are. So I don't think you can really so much separate them, but the concepts are there together. In Luke 13, 3, it says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 13, 3, Luke 13, 5, Jesus, in case you didn't hear him the first time, he says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now this, I want to unpack this a little more because in Luke 13, he's actually having a conversation with people who think that they're better than others. And so Luke 13, we're going to read a little bit of this, verses 1 through 5. And we'll get the context of that phrase Jesus gave, where he says, Unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Luke 13, verse 1 says, Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? So the context is, someone brought it up for whatever reason. And they're thinking, these people got killed because they were sinners. Like they got what they deserved. And Jesus, he kind of targets the thing in their head. Do you think that's what happened? You think they suffered because they were worse sinners than other people? That's why they got killed and not other people? Then he goes on. Verse 3, I tell you no. No. That is not necessarily why they died. Now there are times where people suffer and even die because of their sin. And there are other plenty of times where they suffer and die and it has nothing to do with it. Or at least not because their sin is greater than yours. He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those who 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? 
As you can imagine, a, a building falls, it killed 18 people, and they're like, well, those 18 people must have been some pretty big scumbags, you know, like for that to happen. And Jesus was like, no. But what, what we, our tendency was to do in the Western world is to say, no, they didn't do anything wrong. Those 18 people had no guilt of any kind before God. Jesus doesn't say that, though, does he? He's like, no, you all deserve it. Wait, Jesus, you're not acting like Jesus, Jesus. You all deserve it. Unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. The point I think Jesus is making in Luke 13 is that there's a universal need for repentance because there is universal problems of sin. And that every day you live is the grace of God another day. Every day. So this, this idea of repentance here, Jesus seems to think it's a universal thing. And he says, unless they do it, they're not going to survive. <clears throat> In Luke 24, 47, Jesus says, And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is at the road to Emmaus. And he's telling these guys, these, these two disciples, that repentance for forgiveness should be preached everywhere. So he's telling us to preach this. Like we have it from Jesus to preach repentance. It doesn't get any easier than that as far as getting the answer to the question, should I be preaching repentance? Yes. So we go forward. We look at the disciples. In Mark chapter 6, verse 12, it says they went out and preached that men should repent. That men should repent. In Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, and this is in the first great outreach when they're like, what do we do? What do we do, Peter? He says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he, he, there's no hesitance in Peter's mind to tell people to repent. Our culture really does not care for this idea, right? Please don't tell me to repent. Like, if you tell me to repent, like, you're one of those crazy street sign holding preachers. That's what you are. But you do need to repent. That's the thing. That's, I mean, it's just true. It's just true. So do I. We need to repent. Acts 3.19, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's Peter preaching in his second big preachment. His second, that's what we call preachment. Is that a fun word? You can use that word now. Preachment, where he goes out and he shares the gospel with a, 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 whole, a whole different big crowd of thousands. In Acts 5.31, the disciples again are preaching repentance. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In Acts 11.18, we get this again from the disciples. And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Now there are those who are anti-repentance, and they say, Acts 11.18 doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean they'll repent and they'll get eternal life. It means life like in a positive life experience thing. Like it's, we're not saying you have to repent. We're just saying it's good for you. Right? Like if you eat better, you'll get life. If you repent, you'll get life. But that's, I mean, read the context, right? They're shocked that Gentiles have been given the Holy Spirit and that God has saved them. And they conclude God, too, has granted them repentance unto a more enjoyable life. No, into salvation. They're obviously talking about salvation here. Like, you have to really butcher the text to, um, to try to give it that other interpretation. Paul, when he's speaking with a pagan audience in Acts 17, 
So it's not just Jews. As we just read, it was Gentiles too. And Paul puts that into practice. In Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men, or to men, that all people everywhere should repent. I mean, Paul just says, God is telling the world to repent. This works perfectly with what Jesus said when he mentioned that everybody needs to repent. And finally, Hebrews 6.1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about, about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That was a foundation in the church. It's a foundational thing. To take out repentance for whatever reason, I'm making some mistake. Clearly, I'm supposed to teach it. Clearly, I'm supposed to preach it. Clearly, I'm supposed to tell everyone that they all should repent. So the next question comes up. Is it a work? I mean, is repentance a work, though? Because, say, by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works, would mean apart from repentance, too, if repentance is a work. Well, my answer is going to be no, and the scripture helps us here. Um, In Matthew 3.8, in Matthew 3.8, it tells us, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's interesting, isn't it? If repentance was the acts that you did afterwards, how you didn't, you didn't sin or whatever, then you wouldn't call that the fruit of repentance. That would just be repentance. But here we're told repentance is something that happens in your heart and your life bears the fruit of it. So therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance. In Luke 3.8, we get this again. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So the outward actions are a result of the inward reality of repentance. Now, I would add, too, as Christians, that they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's him who works in me to will and do according to his good pleasure. But there's an attitude change of repentance. That's the idea. It's my attitude towards sin changing, just as my attitude towards Jesus is changing. It's both of those things, two sides of the same coin. In Acts 26.20, it says, uh, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first, this is about Paul, by the way, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. See, repentance is the inner thing that happens in their, in their own, inside themselves, so to speak. And then outwardly, you go and you live it out. But repentance and the deeds are separate things, or else you can't talk about them like this. That's the idea. It's like faith. When James says, I'll show you my faith by my works, he doesn't mean works are my faith. He means they're a demonstration that my faith is real. And so the same thing. When I say, hey, you know, um, Kirk, I repent of, you know, biting your, your glasses the other day. Which, uh, I've never done that. But let's suppose I, and then, and then in keeping with that, I never bite his glasses again. I don't know why. I just think. In youth ministry, we've done a lot of strange things. So <laughs> not that. Don't mess up my glasses. Smack. Your glasses have broken several times, so that's why I'm thinking about that. Um, But in keeping with that, you know, I repent of such and such attitude. In keeping with that, I have works that fit that repentance. That's the idea. So repentance is not a work. Repentance and faith um, does not include obedience, is what I'm saying. Repentance is not obedience. Faith isn't even obedience. But they lead to it, don't they? Yeah, it's the heart work that happens. Obedience happens naturally afterward. Repentance is the heart turning from sin. And then we get to the next question. Okay, so we know repentance is needed. You've got to preach it. It's part of the gospel. The second question was, is it a work? And the answer is no. It, it results in works that demonstrate that it's real, but it's an in- internal thing. The next thing is, well, but what's an actual careful definition of repentance? Like, 
consulting Greek lexicons and scholarlyish people and stuff like that. So that's the next question we have. So um, while there's a lot you can get from lexicons on this, I, I actually really liked the um, description of repentance I got from the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. I thought it was a really, they put it a really good way. So let me just read it to you. Literally, a change of mind, not about individual plans, intentions, or beliefs, but rather a change in the whole personality from a sinful course of action to God. That's their description of repentance. So some will say repentance is merely changing your mind. Um, and, and there's an element of it where you're, you are changing your mind, but it's not merely changing your mind. That might be too slim of a definition of repentance because literally repentance then would be, you know, I used to sin and think nothing was wrong with it. Now I think it's bad. I changed my mind. But you haven't repented of it. You know, like you just think it's bad. You just feel bad about it or whatever, but you haven't repented. There isn't, there's no posture difference towards that. So not just a change of opinion. Uh, Wayne Grudem puts it this way. He says, a, de- a decision of resolve to turn away from one's evil or wrongful conduct. A decision or resolve to turn away. Right? I- I'm still going to rely on him for the-, for the enablement to accomplish it. But I- that's the decision that I'm taking. There's two Greek words, uh, metanoia and metanaeo, which you don't need to remember, that are used a noun and a verb form for this word repentance. And here's what we get from the Lexham Theological Wordbook. And this is interesting because this is where the debate gets a little weird. Because the Greeks would use the term one way, but the Jews would use it a different way. And so when the lexicons are giving you like, here's how the Greeks use the word, it sounds like it's just changing your opinion about something. But when you look at it in the Jewish context, you find out that it has uh, more meaning to it. And that's how they use the term. And so in the New Testament, this is from Lexham Theological Wordbook. In the New Testament, it primarily refers to a comprehensive change of one's orientation toward following God. It originally referred to a change of mind, but by the time of the New Testament, it had taken on a meaning in Jewish thought of a return to God. Repentance, like I'm turning back to God. That's the idea of repentance. It's really simple. It's really simple. We overcomplicate it too much. I'll give you one more definition, primarily a change of mind, also with a nuance of remorse and regret for shortcomings and errors in our literature with focus on the need of change in view of responsibility to deity, repentance, turning about, conversion. That's from the Bauer lexicon. Um, So in other words, it's not just changing your mind or opinion about things, but it does include that aspect there as well. But ask seriously when you think about this. When you've, ter- when you've repented of something, there was, an, there was a time where something changed internally, right? Where you were like, I'm turning from that thing. That's repentance. It's that simple. And that's what we're telling people to do. You need to turn from sin. Does that mean I'll be sinless? Well, if, if that's the case, none of us have ever repented. Does that mean I'll never, ever, ever do it again? I hate to say it, but if that's the case then few of us have repented. Or at least all of us have repented of only very few things. <laughs> There's only very few things that you're like, never did that again, right? Um, but yet many things you continue to struggle with and continue to battle with. So yeah, but it's just that, it's just that internal turning and I think it's the counterpoint of faith. It's like re- repentance is what I'm turning from, sin. Faith is who I'm doing, turning towards, God. Repentance and faith. When I do one, I do the other. Right? My back's turned towards God, my face towards sin. Well, I turn my face away from sin. That's repentance. Or I should say, I turn my back towards sin. That's repentance. There we go. I turn my face towards God. That's faith. I mean, I think that that's kind of the, 
There's my sloppy analogy for you. Um, that being said, I think it's smart for us to ask right now, in all honesty, and just to ponder this tonight, is there anything you need to repent of? Um, don't become so introspective that you find things that don't exist, because you can do that, and it's not healthy. But just if it's obvious. If there's just obvious things, yeah, I know, you know, then, then come before the Lord and have fresh repentance over that issue. It's good for your soul. <laughs> it's good for you. Um, so does this mean saving faith includes obedience? No, um, obedience naturally follows, but that's not what it means. Repentance is just an element of faith. And we get this like in Hebrews 6.1, you know, I said one, I'm turning from one to the other. That's what Hebrews 6.1 kind of tells us. It says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. I'm turning from the works and toward God. That's the idea. I repent of things, but I have faith in a person. I repent of the stuff. I have faith in him. That's the idea. Acts 20, 21, they were solemnly testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here the, the repentance is toward God because the, the negative side of repentance is towards sin. The positive side is towards God. You get the idea. So a gospel without repentance may actually lead very well to false converts. I think that's the bottom line. If I tell people you don't need to repent, I may lead to false converts. Now, I may not say the word repent every time I share with somebody, but since it is kind of the other side of the coin of faith, I do think that sometimes people, when, they're, when they put faith in Christ, they're repenting already. That may, be well, that may well be the case. It's not like you have to specifically say the word repent every time. I don't think I need to be that strict on these things. But the concept is part of our turning to God, is, is the idea. What, though, about repenting again? I think I should bring this up. What about repenting over and over and over again? Um, yeah. I think that that's probably going to happen in your life. It has in mine. And it continues to. And we continue to grow. And we continue to rely and cling to the grace of Jesus Christ daily. And realize how much more we need him all the time. Imagine the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story, right? The son, he turns from his ways. He's like, what am I doing? Comes to his senses. What am I doing? I'm eating with the pigs. I'm like, but my, my father's over there. I'm going to go back to my father and ask if I can just be one of his servants. And he goes back and he confesses, Lord, uh, your father, I've, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I've done these terrible things. Can I just be one of your servants? And the father receives him back. Now, do you think the father thought to himself at that point, now I know he'll never mess up again. Probably not the case, right? Repentance when you come to Christ is like going from the pig trough back to the Father. But you're still going to have issues. I do imagine. I, I think it's, I think you, and you know it, right? I, yeah, we have issues. I have issues and I continue to go to the Lord over those issues. And here's an encouraging word from Jesus. Revelation 3.19, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That's in the letters to the churches in Revelation 3.19. He's writing to Christians, telling them, I love you. Don't be discouraged by this. Repent and come back to me. Repentance is always an invitation back to God. It's not an insult. It's, it's a loving invitation back to God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul rejoices that the church repented after the sin and issues they had that he wrote about earlier. So you repented and he's like, oh, thank God. I'm, so re I'm rejoicing that you've repented is the idea. Do Christians repent? I hope so. I hope so. That's the idea. In Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, Jesus, he makes this even more extreme than I ever could have imagined he would. 
He says, be on your guard. If a, if a brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. By the way, we, we forget to, to follow that first one. If your brother sins, rebuke him. We just go, if he sins, I'll just never talk to him. Um, I'll, just, I'll just store it up and get bitter. But if he sins against you, rebuke him. Why? Because you're trying to restore the relationship. That's the idea. We're not willing to give up these friendships and brotherhood relationships so easily. But he says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And then he goes further. And if he sins against you seven times a day, seven times a day, and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now on the human side, I'm like, that's a lot of forgiven, right? But then I'm inspired when I realize on the divine side that that's, how, that's sometimes how my walk with God feels. I feel like I've came seven times today to repent the same things. Will you forgive me? Well, I don't think Jesus is going to ask you to be more gracious than he is. So I happen to like that analogy <laughs> or that, that illustration. Seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So repent. It's the attitude I take towards sin and faith. It's the attitude I take towards Christ, two sides of the same coin. And then finally, Jesus, he says, believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's that idea of trust. Um, what's missing from this is works. It's just completely missing from this picture. The time's at hand, repent, believe. You've got to repent because of sin, but you're not going to have access because of your good works. No, no, no. You're just going to believe. You're just going to have faith. You just believe the gospel and you're saved. That's it. I do nothing. You do nothing. I do nothing. You do nothing. That's the whole story. That's the gospel message. It's the sufficiency of grace versus the necessity of grace. We all, um, as Christian, Bible-believing Christians, think that grace is sufficient. It's enough. That's all I need is the grace of God and I'm forgiven. I'm washed and clean. That's it. End of story. There are, however, some who think that grace, while it's necessary, it's a necessity, it's not enough. It's not sufficient. So I need grace plus works. So yeah, you need grace, but you got to do this and you got to join this church and you got to go this many times and you got to be at this kind of thing and you got to do that kind of, and this kind of stuff I go, it, it sort of cheapens God's grace, I think, actually. Uh, yeah. So the core message that Jesus has got across to us is this. The time is now. God's kingdom's available. Repent, which is an internal remorse and turning from sin, and believe. That's faith in Christ, in his death, in his resurrection. And the point for us Christians is that we need to echo this message, not alter this message. When I share the gospel with people, I'm sharing with them, the time is now. The kingdom of God is available to you, but you need to repent and you need to believe. There's my gospel message. I'd say Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did a pretty good job you know, boiling it down, <laughs> taking what Jesus taught and bringing it to us like this. If there's anybody watching this video or listening even today, you've, you've, you know the gospel, you've heard the gospel, but you've not responded to the gospel, my encouragement is to repent. That's right, take a new attitude towards your sin, an attitude of remorse, of rejection towards those things, an attitude of belief and trust in Christ, his death and resurrection. That's the gospel. And then let God start to do the transforming work in your life. That's it. That's the whole gospel. So, is repentance needed? Yeah. We got to preach it. We got to preach it. Do I have to say the word repent every time? Not, not necessarily. No, sometimes they just said believe. But I feel belief and repentance, you don't get one without the other, ultimately. And so, um, we can't do what some do and try to actually systematically remove, surgically remove repentance from the gospel presentation. 
I don't care if you think it works or not. Um, it's the gospel. It works. It works. Um, and for those whom it doesn't work with, that's because it doesn't work with them. <laughs> like, it's like, alter it if you want. It's still not working. That's the idea. So next week, uh, I'm going to speed up a little bit. We'll, we'll cover a little bit more content in the Gospel of Mark, but we're going to continue plowing through uh, Mark chapter 1. We'll be getting to the calling of some of the disciples and Jesus doing healings and other things like that, but I wanted to take a chance to talk about this issue of repentance. It has actually been a controversy. I've avoided the terms free grace and lordship salvation, which have become the terms people throw around in this controversy because I don't really like either term, and I don't want to align myself with one of those terms. So I want to stick to just what does the scripture say about this issue? Let's talk about it. Let's unpack it. Let's follow it. So let's pray. Um, Lord, we just thank you for the incredible grace of Christ that is free and for the fact that Jesus, um, we need to receive you as Lord. I mean, you are Lord. Receiving you means receiving you as Lord. There's no receiving you without taking you as you are. We pray that we would have the confidence and courage to continue sharing the gospel and to do so more boldly, to do so more loudly, with, um, with kindness, pleading, pleading with people to come to Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would give us courage. And we ask God for, um, for our own lives where we need repentance, that we'd remember that that grace of Christ that bought us is the same grace that sustains us, that is upon us every day, every moment, and that we would come boldly to that throne of grace. If you said seven times a day um, for us to forgive one another, then Lord, indeed, you're there ready to forgive. For our many repeated failings, we still trust in Christ. We still rely on your grace. We're no further along in achieving some righteousness of our own. No, we're completely dependent on you, Jesus. And we thank you because you're sufficient. You've covered us. In Jesus' name, amen.